0: Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 11th of December. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear our chat with artist Lisa Rowett about the David Greybeard sculpture that's currently sitting outside Hammer Hall. And we also chatted to Michael Harden as he gave us his final food interlude of the year in wrapped up 2020.
1: Uh, we were fortunate enough to talk to Dr Eric Fitzgerald from Museums Victoria about the new Triceratops that's arriving mm. uh, and also we talked about school concerts and Adam Christou came in for uh, Game Changers where he did a wrap of the, all the games from 2020.
2: Our Friday funny bugger this week was Irvi Majumda and looking at Christmas films, Haley Inch went back 60 years to Billy Wilder's The Apartment.
3: Melbourne's Own. Triple R.
2: Lisa Roth is a visual artist who has exhibited within Australia and internationally for the past 30 years, and whose work has focused on some of the world's environmental hotspots, including Borneo and China, resulting in a series of large scale public artworks exhibited internationally. Her latest sculpture, David Greybeard, celebrates the 60th anniversary of Jane Goodall's groundbreaking research expedition in Tanzania. And the chimpanzee welcomed her into his family and to tell us about its appearance in Melbourne. The artist joins us on the line now. Lisa,
4: welcome Hi. to Breakfasters. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, our pleasure. I went past Hamer Hall uh, yesterday and David looked a bit deflated. Well, yeah, that's a problem. La Nina, thank you very much, has arrived. <laughs> so, um, you know, we originally were scheduled for April, which is the best month in Melbourne, being a very windy city. Um, but, of course, COVID caused a few hiccups there. So we're, we're back up in December, but we've, we're we're confronted by the winds. But that's actually part of the whole project anyway. You know, it's made of a deflatable, deflatable material and um, wind is... Is we're subject to the elements, put it that way.
2: Right. And so who's in charge of inflating and deflating and staying abreast of the conditions?
4: Um, I've got a couple of out-of-work roadies who jump up with some straps and we've got a scissor lift. So I was there at 10.30 last night when the wind subsided and wow. um, we got him up again. And it was so fun. You know, all these people, about 50 people on the bridge celebrating oh. his re <laughs> Cool. Arrival. It, yeah, it was really
2: fun. It was great. You keep get you get to have multiple openings.
4: Like endless. It's a performance. It is the Art Centre of Melbourne. So we've we've got to, you know, it is a performance and I that's the reason I love that material is it's you know, while it's quite sort of whimsical in a way you know it's got this really pertinent message with the work that when every time he inflates it's like this reawakening of this animal that's Mm. you know on the endangered list and you know he represents all extinction of species really and all this sort of decline that's going on at the moment.
2: What did you use uh did you use photographs video what how did you get how did you capture
4: David Graybeard? Uh, the, the project started with um, the Goodall Institute approaching me to do one of these projects to celebrate Jane's 60-year anniversary. Um, but the, I, I spoke to Jane and the chimpanzee that she wanted me to represent was this particular chimp called David Greybeard, who was important to her in her research. And um, he was the one that she – one of her biggest achievements was that she recognised that through her observations of David that Animals other than humans use tools and while that seems like a small achievement, it's actually redefined humanity. So humans got placed completely different scientifically in the animal kingdom because of that discovery so we chose David Greybeard and there's only a couple of photos of him so she I had a meeting with her with the initial design and she sort of helped me she was sort of like going "Oh no, his beard was longer and it's greyer and his chest was wider and Mm -hmm. so that's how we sort of started it and then I kept working with someone called Felipe Reynolds who's got this great company called Arena and we um, continued the process and designed him through those initial sketches Mm -hmm.
2: And what's your uh, what's your fascination with our attitudes, and what are our attitudes that you're critiquing um, with our relatives?
4: Um, I see apes as the mirror to humans. Um, You know, it's very hard to be objective about being a human because we are human and we're looking at ourselves. Um, Chimpanzees in particular and bonobos are our closest animal relative. They're so close that we share the same blood types. So theoretically, you could even have a blood transfusion with a chimpanzee Uh. or a bonobo. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I work a lot with scientists, so I, I've even worked in Atlanta with a particular chimpanzee who speaks through a keyboard system and that was um, pretty wild. <laughs> that was a life-changing experience. How advanced was their speech or their ability? Um, it was, I would have called equivalent of about a four-year-old. Oh, my. So, yeah, no, I, he used to, this chimpanzee used to get me to dress up in his favourite suit and <laughs> so I was always dressed up as a wolf. Um, or we'd go looking for blueberries in a in a particular grounds sort of wooded area. It's, this is in Atlanta. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a pretty wild experience working with chimpanzees, especially. But
1: how um, do you go from doing that kind of work and then going back home and trying to
4: live a normal life? <laughs> like it's it is life changing, you know? Yeah, because like, it makes you. I I, to- I mean, I've always had that sense of understanding that we are an animal, you know, I mean, we are apes. Humans actually sit in the ape family and most people, I think through a whole range of reasons from religion to whatever, we've sort of placed ourselves as if we're not even in the animal kingdom and, you know, hence we've got this ridiculous problem going on globally where, you know, this rate of extinction is just bizarre and horrendous and global warming and all the problems that we've got and that I I think is really due to the fact that, um, we've separated ourselves. We sort of think we're above it all, but so it's it's hard. But it's it it that, that experience in particular was life changing. It made me it really consolidated all those sort of you know that what I knew to be right, but you know it was so obvious. Mm. Is there anything happening in
2: Australian culture where we're contributing uh, to impacts on the species that maybe we perhaps don't realise?
4: Australia's, well, What we, one thing we need to realise is we've got the greatest rate of extinction of species in the world, <laughs> which is pretty frightening. We've got one of the biggest deforestations in the, you know, in the developed world. So we've got a lot to do here. I think we just look out our window and go, well, it looks pretty good. We've, everything's going all right here. I, I do a lot of work in China and obviously, you know, that's a problem. You can wake up in the morning and you feel like you're, you're breathing pea soup, but mm. it's so we don't have that problem. But it's it's sort of insidious here. It's sort of unseen, and um, we need to do something about it. And we also what we're having a coal led recovery. <laughs> Come on, mm. <laughs> what a joke! We, I mean, globally we're seeing it, it's not a good look. We need to sort of change change some things here. Mm. So so David
2: Greybeard's in Melbourne or posing on the beside Hamer Hall for uh, how much longer?
4: Uh, only till the 22nd. And then what happens to him? He then gets taken down. We, we He was meant to be going directly to Marseille where he's the mascot for the IUCN Congress, which is the Extinction of Species Congress, um, but that's been repositioned for the middle of the year. So um, he'll go dormant for a few months and then he's going to Paris first now. Okay. Um, and then he starts a global tour. So he, it'll be a mixture of going to major cities and to some of these world congresses on, on, like, for example, Glasgow, COP26. He'll be there in November. And do you always accompany him? I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how that vaccine goes. Yeah. But, I mean, luckily, he's designed. He's totally COVID friendly. You know, he's outdoors. Um, we've got a whole inflation, deinflation plan. So he can travel without me, which is good.
2: And this metallic material that can inflate and deflate, what, what's it like? What is it, what's it like to touch? Is it super expensive? Could it have apl- application camping?
4: Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we first found that material, Felipe and I, when the first project I did was a gold monkey, which was based on a, a new subspecies of um, snub-nosed monkey that was discovered and was highly endangered and it went to China. Um, and I wanted it to be gold, um, but we wanted a material that was durable, sustainable, lightweight. Um, So we actually went to the archives of the ballet and they've got all these leftover materials there and we we found one particular material that fitted the purposes. And so the idea is that these materials look like they're metal so that when it's up, it has that sense of a heavy metal material. Um, I work a lot with um, cast um, bronze works so I wanted to have that solid sort of look and these work these materials work beautifully but the beauty is that they pack down to a really small um shipping crate um, which makes it lightweight, carbon neutral. We can make a carbon neutral project. Mm. This particular project, we've worked a circular sustainable model through RMIT and we've got a carbon offset in Tanzania with tree planting and um, it's a great material because you can reuse it, re it, tra- um, move it around really easily with a low footprint. Um, yeah, it's great.
2: Mm. Where's the valve?
4: The valve is a zipper and a bit of Velcro um, at the back. We've got it around the anal passage. (laughs) (laughs) That seems appropriate. (laughs) It's easy um, airflow when uh, we need to get it out really quickly.
2: Brilliant. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's such a beautiful day to check David Greybeard out as well, isn't it?
4: And also come down at night. He's really beautifully lit. And Mm. I think next we've got about nine days of La Nina going into a nice pattern. So, but we look at Tuesday, maybe he might have to come down for the day. So I should let you guys know when we're going to inflate again, because it's really beautiful. When he inflates, it's like this mound of material and he just emerges like Mm. this. It's really incredible, actually. I really would recommend you get down. And is and that what was
0: happening at ten thirty last night?
4: Yeah. Oh wow. It's yeah. spooky. Oh, uh, yeah, it's it is actually quite moving. People just gasp when he comes alive because it's it's like slow motion. It's like we've animated it exactly to do it perfectly. And it's mm. just yeah, it's wild.
2: Brilliant. Well, it's uh, David Greybeard outside the uh, Hamer Hall Terrace uh, in association with the Jane Goodall Institute Australia. Um, go check it out. We've been speaking with artist Lisa Rott. Thanks so much, Lisa.
4: Thanks for having me. See Brilliant. you later. Triple I'm hungry. I want something
1: to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet.
2: Michael Harden is here for the final food interlude of 2020. Good morning, Michael.
5: Good morning. I feel like I should have some sort of fanfare or <laughs> you know the, the beating
2: I'm affra- of I afraid it's just us being very excited. It had it's been um, quite one for the uh, for your industry. What have you made of it?
5: Uh yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a struggle. Um it's been really interesting. It's also I think been quite amazing about how resilient the most of the hospitality industry is and um, how entrepreneurial and clever they all are in terms of looking after their workers and, you know, there's been there's been a few sort of loud voices sort of complaining about things, but mostly people just um, got on with it and looked after their workers as much as they could and took advantage of things like, you know, delivery and, um, you know, finishing meals at home and that sort of stuff, which was, you know, the, the only thing that they could do really. Um, at that stage but it's sort of it's interesting to see now that we're coming out of lockout to see you know whether delivery is going to sort of stay on as a thing and it seems I think it probably will Mm -hmm. um, but in a much reduced capacity like particularly like I've talked to quite a few of the sort of higher-end restaurant people and they have all said no we're shutting it down as soon as we can because you know that it was it took up a lot of energy and, uh, and a lot of them were really concerned about the amount of packaging that, ne- that needed to come into play with delivery. You know, they were sort of like I was talking to one um, restaurateur and they were saying that um, they were using one whole room of their restaurant just to store boxes wow. and delivery meals. And so it was like, you know, there was this whole thing. This is one of the things that that um, the COVID ha- has done with the food industry. It's like it's this huge upsurge in packaging because of everything needing to be, you know, we were going to the point where there was, um, you know, people were reducing their straws and you know, you're not using straws in their bars anymore and everything. And now, you know, basically, if you want to use a straw, it's got to be wrapped in plastic before you yeah. can that sort of stuff and you know there was the whole thing of like not being able to use keep cups when you mm. um, went to cafes and stuff and so but the other the you know the upside of that is that there are now all these sort of interesting ways of recycling things like coffee cups i noticed in my local shopping center the other day there was one a whole unit that was particularly designed for coffee cups where you could put your lid in one bit and your, your cup in the other bit so you know that's sort of like people you know they move around so um it's kind of interesting in that way but um, you know, it's been interesting also that there's been, there has been actually some good openings this year, which seems really weird that that, that would happen. And um, and there's been quite a few that are on the, on the cards, like, for example, Andrew McConnell opened up probably one of the most beautiful restaurants um, in the city um, that has just reopened called Gimlet. And it's the Cavendish House on the corner of uh, Russell Street and Flinders Lane, and it is Seriously, a gorgeous restaurant, and um, one that you know it's going to really work when you're actually allowed to have more than about ten people in there because it mm. is quite a large space. But um, the other thing that I've noticed there was there's been a move to sort of smaller restaurants and restaurant experience as well like I, I went to one this this new place that opened up it's called Shea and it's a korean place in brunswick and it's basically a restaurant in an apartment so it's very much like the sort of um hong kong style of restaurants where you're basically eating in a private space and you could go in there and you there's was, there was five of us eating there at a at this really small beautiful apartment and Che is the name of the woman who cooks there. She's a chef. She's cooked, you know, all in Korea and learned a lot from her mum and stuff. And she does that sort of a, like a six-course meal that she makes in front of you in her kitchen. Oh, oh. The food was so delicious and so beautiful. And she makes, like, she ferments all her own... Um, vegetables and she makes all her own mikagali which is the um, Korean sort of fermented rice drink sort of all well, we had all different ones of those and there was beautiful seafood and like miso broth that she sort of like and the, the the soybean paste that she uses is the is the one that she learned from her mother. And things like that. So there's a there is this move to sort of smaller interior sort of things, like because I know that there's a few chefs around that have been doing private dinner parties in people's houses as well. So people can so it's this shift to sort of smaller groups, mm. not being so much in public, and uh, that kind of thing.
2: I know Michael, you're a sophisticated, unflappable epic- epicurean, but when you are at Korean <laughs> and there's a big fire comes do you still go
6: Ooh!
5: I have you yeah, know that there has been sort of you know I'm, I'm not that cool when it comes to food sometimes it's been I have squealed um, <laughs> and um, have been have been brought to tears by a sardine at once <laughs> I, I, I try and pretend that I'm you know kind of like sophisticated but I'm really just a great food nerd so
1: what was
0: it about the sardine? What did it say to you that made you cry?
5: Yeah, it was really mean to me. Um, <laughs> it was just this beautifully, um, beautifully prepared. It was, but it was actually up in um, Tansy Goods Restaurant up in Kyneton and she does this really classic French cuisine. And she was just making these these sous sardines that were just so perfect and so delicious and so like. It's, it's really old-fashioned, but it was food that you rarely get anymore, and it was that sort of. But seeing that kind of skill from a veteran doing it so well, that was sort of made me get it. You know, sort of like you know, it's pathetic. I realised. Was it but
1: was it your ratatouille? <laughs> yeah,
5: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So yeah, and um, you know, I guess the other thing, you know, sort of like moving, moving to smaller groups inside. I guess the other big thing happened this year is the, you know, the, the, move, the move outside. So we're going to be doing a lot more eating outside. It's like you know we've I've talked about and we've passed you know the whole picnic idea and you know you just look at any park you know these days and it's just full of people picnicking. And then there's all the you know the the parklet is the is the new thing, which is the small um, outdoor areas that um, restaurants are being able to get in the parking spaces that were normally in front of oh. their, of their um, restaurants. So, and it's sort of, it's, it's great because it's like Melbourne being Melbourne, um, the parklet is, uh, there's sort of like, you can see that there's almost a competition to see who can have the most innovative parklet, you know. So mm-hmm. I've seen you know, decking and I've seen plants and I've seen booths and I've seen astroturf and, you know, all these sort of things. So it's, uh, it's re- and it's great. It's It like adds something to the street and um, it's a nice way to eat. And I think, you know, hopefully it's something that will continue on because it's mm. uh, it's a really good way to um, to eat out. Yeah. So, Where's,
2: do you have a do you have a preferred parklet? Who's who's doing it particularly well? Um, we've got. Do we have uh, Gertrude Street? I think Chapel Street. I see Chinatown's really mm-hmm. going to lean in. Yep.
5: Oh, no, that, that's going to be a really interesting one. There's some really interesting ones along Flinders Lane, particularly up the, um, the sort of... Um, you know, strip club end, and um, <laughs> which is sort of pretty grungy and stuff. But there's a, there's a new place there that's opened um, called King William that's, that's just opened this beautiful... So in the middle of this sort of quite grungy urban area, there's this sort of astroturf thing with stripy deck chairs and, you know, little tables and, you know, filtered sunlight through the trees and stuff. It's really mm. good. But, um, yeah, Gertrude Street's doing well. Um, I think my favourite one is probably the one that, because I go there a lot, is um, the one at Gerald's Bar. Um, and they've sort of put in some decking and plants, and they've got, they've got a couple of sort of quite cu- covered booths with sort of laser cut sort of coverings over the top of them and stuff. So it's really interesting. i sort of like, I want the I want the uh, the parklet race to, uh, to mark um, <laughs> yeah. up, and uh, see what people can do. Mm.
2: Uh, so, well, is there anything else caught
5: your eye this year? Well, I just th- thought one thing that sort of like's been really interesting that just happened was um, that the um, the first the first grown meat has been approved, like lab grown meat has been approved in Singapore which I th- for public consumption. Like this has been a thing that's been going on for a while and there's been the attempts to, to do it. And people have been quite successful in making it, but this is the first time that it, it has been released for public consumption. Um, it's still um, extremely expensive. And um, you know, it's like you're basically paying fifty five dollars for a chicken nugget right now. But um, but it is um, it's going into public consumption, and they say that uh, you know as it as it goes along, it will um, you know it's going to, of course scale will mean that it'll come down. And it's and it's a very interesting um, turn up that that they're doing this because it's like you know there's huge things like you know land use and you know emissions, you know reduction in emissions and everything. It's sort of and. With chicken, they are not. No chickens are harmed in the making of the chicken. Like they're, they're, it's more like a biopsy sort of thing they're doing. The only, but then you kind of like the caveat on that is that they're using um, a thing called fetal bovine serum, which just sounds delicious. Bring mm. um, <laughs> you to tears,
2: Michael. Yeah.
5: <laughs> exactly. I'm weeping as we speak. Um, but uh, we're, which is made from obviously fetal, you know, calves in utero. And so the uh, to get that, they have to slaughter pregnant cows. So oh. Oh.
4: it's in, d- it's a
5: in point. very minuscule amount. So it's not like that's hot, like, but it's mm. still one of those things. And that is kind of like it, it's sort of it's like it's fatal flaw at the moment is that it's still needing to use that in order to um, but they're in order to make the, the lab grown meat. But I think it's sort of like there's so many, there's like all over the world there's, there's laboratories working on this at the moment and they're all working to sort of reduce that side of it. And um, I think that it's going to be a particularly interesting thing. I don't think it's going to um, replace real animals completely, but if it can cut down the consumption, you know, particularly for things like nuggets, you know, it, it can cut out all of that stuff. Like, you know, it can cut out factory farming. And, you know, the really cruel treatment of animals and stuff like that, it can it can step in and take over that meat where it's not really about people aren't looking for quality in particular, they're just looking for a bit of our animal protein and grease and salt.
1: Um, we were talking about this the other day and um, a very important question is if a $50 chicken nugget, do you eat it with your fingers or a knife and fork?
5: I would... Absolutely, knife and fork. I would have yes. a linen napkin mm-hmm. and I would serve to you on silver. <laughs> like, you know, what about got- a sauce?
1: Would you would you serve it with the sauce?
5: Yeah, oh, sauce in, in a in a ramekin on the side.
0: Ah, <laughs> good. Daniel will be yeah. happy about the ramekin use. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
5: absolutely. You could, you're not just going to be slopping sauce all over your $55 chicken nugget. No, that's right. Oh, yeah, I'd eat yeah.
1: yeah. it with my fingers and dip it in the in the sauce. No yeah, problem. with
5: your with your pink diamond rings on.
1: It. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's listening. Uh, well, Michael,
2: the list of restaurants and recommendations and foods and insights this year has been phenomenal. It's been a, a pleasure having you on as much as we have, and uh, thanks for all the work that you put into your segment oh, every
5: week. No worry, it's it's been really fun. I always, always like talking to you guys. So.
2: Brilliant, Michael Harden, Thanks very much. Thanks, Michael. Yeah,
5: have a good, have a happy new year.
0: Independently yours, Triple R, 102.7.
2: Museums Victoria has acquired a near complete fossil of a 67 million year old adult triceratops and to tell us about it for Feature Creatures this week we're joined by Senior Curator of Vertebrate Paleontology at Museums Victoria, Dr Eric Fitzgerald. Dr Fitzgerald, welcome to Breakfasters. It's great to be here. Oh, is this exciting or is the novelty worn off for you? Look, it's always
7: exciting. I mean, you know, there's, it's the first time I've uh, been involved in um, such a massive acquisition of a dinosaur fossil in Australia. So um, suffice to say, um, I'm pretty pumped. <laughs>
2: <laughs> how big is it? Uh, you know, how, what's, what's special about this?
7: I, look, I think the first thing to make clear is that, uh, you know, Triceratops is kind of like the least known dinosaur that everyone knows. So it's one of, you know, those childhood favourites for a lot of people. It's sort of like your your old childhood best friend um, that that really this fossil is going to give us an opportunity to meet again for the first time, if you like. What's particularly important about it compared to other Triceratops is that there are so many bones preserved with the skeleton um, and it's all one animal. So most Triceratops fossils are just skulls now that's amazing by on any in any other part of the world that would be incredible um but what there aren't a lot of are triceratops fossils that have lots of bones from one individual animal giving us almost a complete picture of the skeleton And this fossil does that
2: oh why why is it so why triceratops only recently brought to light
7: so Triceratops has been known um, to science for more than 130 years now. It was first named in 1889. Um, so it, it goes back a bit. It's been out there in sort of, you know, the oeuvre of paleontology for quite some time. Um, but as I said, there, there aren't many fossils that actually show us all the details. So there's some surprising things we don't fully understand, such as just how big Triceratops got Um, There's a lot of inference based on more fragmentary fossils, um, how much it weighed. There are numbers out there. You could jump online now, have a look. But I think there's question marks around exactly how we've reached some of those conclusions. And then the perennial mystery of mysteries when it comes to Triceratops, just what were those iconic three horns and big shield-like frill at the back of the skull used for? Mm. That we don't know.
0: Hmm. So they say twelve tons. That's quite
7: big. <laughs> it's pretty big. It's pretty big. You know that twelve. You know twelve tons is more than your average um, adult male African elephant, which is the largest living land animal today. So it's quite a bit larger than that. Mm. Are we giving this Triceratops a name? Great question. Um, there is a. There is a. Uh, let's say um, plans. Uh, underway to to develop sort of uh, this Triceratops as if you like um, as having its own avatar um, that the public will get to know and love, uh, but that's something I can't really talk about too much right now. Mm. <laughs> What's this space?
4: Uh,
2: and what about uh, this idea that well, where is it from? Is is it Montana?
7: Yeah, so the fossil was um, first found in 2014 and it was dug up um, on a private property on a ranch um, in the extreme southeastern corner of the state of Montana in the USA.
2: So what is it about Montana? Because Montana's popped up a little bit
7: for fossils. That's right. Yeah, so one thing about fossils that... um, that That is actually one of the simplest things about them. Um, where we find fossils is where we have the opportunity to actually find them. Fossils aren't distributed evenly across the surface of the earth and Montana has this, shall we say, confluence of characteristics that makes it uh, a fossil hunter's uh, dream. The number one thing is that there are rocks of the right age that were formed in ancient environments Um, where you're going to have fossils preserved. That's the first thing. Second thing is that unlike, for example, Australia, there's been active tectonic activity, so essentially active um, uplift of mountains um, over several tens of millions of years that have exposed these rocks from underneath the Earth's surface and they're continuing to do so. And so those rocks are being exposed and eroded. And when you have exposure of rocks of the right type and the right age, And they're being eroded. Well, that's not only eroding rocks, but it's uncovering. Nature is uncovering fossils. And, of course, that final element is a pretty big population in America and a lot of people out there looking for fossils, whether they're scientists or um, landowners, members of the public, um, commercial fossil prospectors, and they're finding the fossils. So all of those things combined makes Montana a sort of dinosaur bonanza.
1: (laughs) Uh, There's a bit of work that needs to be done before the general public can see this triceratops. Can you talk to us a bit about uh, what's involved?
7: Sure. It's really the bulk of the work that has to happen after a fossil is found. So a lot of people imagine that when a fossil is found in the field, you know, almost Jurassic Park style, it's just a matter of brushing the sand and sediment away with a paintbrush, or I often say... That's archaeologists, not paleontologists, <laughs> at least in Australia. In my experience, <laughs> I've rarely had to get the paintbrushes out. But it does happened. So a lot of people sort of conceptualise that that's the really big bit of it. And that's sort of the romantic, exciting part out in the field. But the real painstaking, at, some, at times admittedly tedious work happens when the fossil goes back into the lab or workshop and the hours, days, sometimes years... Goes into removing the fossils from the rock and vice versa, and so that work is being completed right now. And so far, that's been going on for more than a year. Once those bones are cleaned, if you like, or as we say, prepared, removed from that sedimentary rock, um, we then have the process of uh, repairing bones. You know, sixty-seven million years of uh, of being entombed does quite a bit to these bones. There are cracks that need to be um, sort of glued and filled, etc. And then once those bones are out, it's the process of then building a steel framework on which those bones have to sit on. Or if you like, little individual cradles uh, made of steel brackets that they sit in and that holds up that skeleton um, in the exhibition display. So all of that work is happening now and that's many, many months of work by many people.
2: Mm. And be honest, because you're allowed to hang around the Triceratops and, you know, you'll be, you're will be you in charge. Will you put, like, your head in its mouth and stuff? Or?
7: Look, one, I, I have to admit, one of the things that it's very hard to stop a paleontologist from doing is that when you get a jawbone or some big teeth, um, and I stress that we would normally do this with replicas, not the original fossils, um, there is a bit of a, uh, a, a meme, if you like, amongst paleontologists of holding the jaws up near your mouth. And uh, <laughs> um, that, that, I have seen that being done. I, I can't confirm or deny whether I have. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that, but I have seen other people do that. Your friends of yours uh, have a done. Bit of a thing. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, and from what you see about its cultural impact, what what ages go the most nuts for something like this?
7: it's a really interesting question. I mean, I'd I'd say that I think um, people of all ages love dinosaurs. I mean, it's one of those things that's one of the most enduring, enduringly popular phenomena. I mean, this goes right back to uh, the 19th century, um, early 19th century, when fossils and dinosaurs started really breaking out into the public consciousness. So they're always popular. But I think there, there's been studies that have shown that there is sort of like a sweet spot, if you will, of where dino fanaticism, mania, et cetera, really detonates, if you like, uh, in in human minds. And I think that that's really children, uh, you know, between about the age of four um, and seven, and that that's really where dinosaurs are particularly popular. And that, and I think from that point, you're either you sort of go through that phase and then move on to other things in life, or you do that, but retain, you know, what I call, you know, the sort of terminal case of dinosauritis, (laughs) which most paleontologists, no matter what their specialist expertise in terms of fossils is, um, I think most paleontologists can't deny that dinosaurs are really important to our field and they're really important to science as sort of a gateway um, to interest and understanding about nature and just the world around us.
2: Well, it's very exciting acquisition. Congratulations. When can we see it?
7: We're going to be able to see it in all its glory, everyone from around the world, uh, in late 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be in a absolutely spectacular exhibition currently in development, at Melbourne Museum, and it is going to be a blockbuster. Mm. Yeah.
2: Uh, Dr Eric Fitzgerald, something to look forward to from museums. Victoria, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Mm.
1: Triple R. Getting towards the end of the year, and uh, yes, we've missed out on many, 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 many things this year, um, but uh, one of them, is the end-of-year school concerts. <laughs> um, as someone that um, doesn't go to school and has nobody that goes to... Um, I have no children, um, but still, any opportunity to go to a school concert, I'd be there. <laughs> I love them. Big fan. You never know what you're going to get. It's the um, you know the thrill of the amateur theatre, combined with the community spirit. Mm. What, a, what a joy. Um, in our, our school, we would do, in our primary school, it was like every second year they'd do a big, big show um, and each alternate year it would be singing Christmas carols on the back of a truck. <laughs> a flatbed truck out on the oval, everyone stand up there, get a bit of tinsel away in a manger That's awesome. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it was beautiful. But it meant that, um, like, usually when you, like, only, like, the year sixes would get a major role in the end-of-year production, like in the, if if it wasn't a Christmas carol year, um, that yeah, the big roles would go to if you were in year six. And I worked it out that, like, when I was in year six, it was going to be a carols on the back of a truck year. And I was a bit... Like I think I worked it out maybe year three, or year four, and I was like, but well, that's something I'm going to have to deal with. It's not enough <laughs> It's got two years to to get to get over it, to make yeah. peace with it, yeah. But then, but then, I worked that they uh, the year there was a a teacher wrote an original production. I know it was about um, saving the environment. It was an environmental play, um, and. If you're in Year Five or Year Six, you're allowed to audition. I auditioned and got the part of Artie, the art art lover, um, when I was in Year Five in the end of year major production.
0: Oh, it worked yeah. out!
1: Game changer. <gasps> I was very excited. Um, lots of um, non-original tunes. So it was just a, a play where there was a group of friends who went to a tip and went, oh, this could be so beautiful and we cleaned it up and that's that's what we need to do with the whole world.
0: Oh, good, great analogy. The
1: whole world. And John yeah, um, Williams then rip, rip, Woodchip chip, turn it into paper. <laughs> Bit of think midnight like oil like. in there as well. There's midnight oil and there was a guy, one of our classmates, they just gave him a ball cap and then he came and he just did... <laughs> Did the, the dance? Perfect, he did the per- dance perfectly. It was like <laughs> they knew that they you couldn't plan anything after that dance. Like that was the closer because that was the peak, the showstopper. Primary school, yeah, it tore the absolute house. Like people were went mad for it. We couldn't wait to do it like again the next night. We Like oh, we can't wait for Paul to come out and do his. Little Peter Garrett
2: dance. Um, I feel like it was the teacher's long game, like make a musical. Yeah. Try get it staged. Do a teaching degree. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Teach for five years. Maybe
0: there'll be a talent scout in the audience. They'll pick it up. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I remember
2: I was, uh, I I have no idea what the name of the musical was, but I was Brad the Baddie good at nothing but being bad. Ooh. ooh. And um, I remember I had a scene where I had to bully someone, like f- physically, like, intimidate them, and they were, like, scared of me. Uh, yeah. I did too good a job. <gasps> and And Steph, poor girl, the teacher took them to McDonald's after. <gasps> <laughs> I just got too much in character for Brad.
1: Oh. and Boy, you just... That's such a Brad.
0: Brad. <laughs> so Brad. Brad. Bad Brad, big bad bully. Oh. Yeah. What happened oh, to Steph after? Did you, did you ever become friends?
2: Oh, uh, she. yeah, we're, we're friends. She's all right. I do feel, I do worry I've done lasting damage, but she says it's fine.
0: Are you still in contact <laughs> with her?
2: Oh, you know, tangential. When you have yeah.
1: when you have um, therapy together. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, but did your schools do any kind of, um, you know, big ticket, you we, know, the big productions? Primary like big... school we
0: had a talent quest. We used to have, so we never had like a big end of year concert. It would be like oh. put an act together and go on the talent quest. Um, yes. And would... I, to, I loved that. I mean, I loved getting up and doing that um but I feel like it didn't go all must not must have gone right through to when I was in grade six um uh Sarah Smith could back me up because same same primary school um but uh, yeah I remember yeah doing it so many different years I think Like with a group And one year I had this friend Who was ended up being a bully She was a real ringleader And so we used to just do What she said And one year She's like We're going to do the wiggles And I was like I hate the wiggles I don't want to do the wiggles And then she's like Yeah Mon You can be the red one Because you've got a red skivvy So then I had to wear (laughs) Um, and we did some Wiggles dance, and I was like, I just was like, this is disingenuous, you know. I don't even watch the Wiggles, um, but we did pretty well, I think. And then another time, well, th- but
1: there was no, it was just you being the Wiggles. There was no like, oh, that was it, social- no. And then another mm. time we
0: did, I don't even know how. Another time we just like got up, <laughs> got up on stage and redid <laughs> commercials, like reenacted ads from TV. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, we did, man, we would do talent quests, talent shows as well. But it was like, we did New Kids on the Block. And like, the boys would get together uh, and we'd get tennis racket covers and we'd use them as put that on your head. That was like your mohawk. And then you'd get your, your tennis racket and that was your guitar. And we would just go out and like they just put play the track of a song and you just go out and, and just shake around, just <laughs> dance around, mate. That is, you know, that seems pretty. But also, it's ten times better than getting up and doing the wiggles. <laughs> like, yeah,
0: yeah. Were you
1: in high school. No, Where no, no, no,
0: it? no. I think I was, I think I was in. I would have been nine or ten. I think I was in grade three. Your bully,
1: what a bully! Because that's. Too old, to yeah. To getting up and and doing the like, I thought maybe you'd get up and do some Spice Girls or something. Yeah, that's well, I got up and did Spice Girls when I was in year twelve. <laughs>
0: so I really was behind. I think maybe for my fortieth birthday, I'll do something age appropriate for a twenty year old. But yeah, it's just.
1: What do you mean? You got up and did Spice Girls when you
0: in year twelve? So my so for my school, like for their sort of. I don't know no, it wasn't any regulation no <laughs> it was like we used to have like a day once a year where different houses got up and like competed and had songs and themes and dances and stuff and um then there would be like a performance from the drama captain and a few others, and we went as the um we went as the spice girls um and look it it brought the house down, so I don't regret it. <laughs> But I was
1: 18. <laughs> and had, were you baby spots? Yes, was. Yeah, I was. Oh it. damn.
0: Triple Ah.
2: After a packed year, bring us the world of gaming. Adam Christie joins us for the final Game Changers segment of 2020. Good morning, Adam. Good morning.
3: How's it going?
0: Very well, thank you. Good,
2: thank you. Well, uh, how are you feeling about the the close of uh, the year and the you know everything that you've observed and played?
3: Oh man, it's it's been a weird year, but it's been nice to have video games with you as a constant, and for lots of really great games to come out this year as well. I think this has actually been like a really great year for games, um, and an interesting swan song for the PlayStation Four and Xbox One X, which are both kind of I guess going off into the sunset this year and being replaced by new consoles, the PlayStation 5 and the Series X and S. Um, so it's been an interesting year of transition and of and, and of new games coming into the space um, and, and a hint of what the next generation of games might look like as well. But I guess overwhelmingly, it's been great because it's been lots of fun things to play. Um, and we've all had plenty of time to, to mm. play games because we've all been stuck at home for the majority of the year. Um You know, which is great for me, because I didn't have to come up with excuses to dodge social events. (laughs) I could just stay home because of the lockdown. So, win-win. So, I thought today we might actually have a look back at some of the highlights of 2020 that I've really enjoyed. And this is a very subjective list of games that I've personally really dug. Um, As well as, um, I guess, really quickly foreshadow a big game that's coming out this Thursday, which I'll, I'll... I'll try to review when I'm if I'm back next year, (laughs) which is Cyberpunk 2077, which is probably the most hyped game of 2020 of the last five, six years. Um, It's by a game development company called CD Projekt Red. Um, It's been in development for over seven years. It has a star-studded cast. Keanu Reeves is in this game. Grimes is in this game. Uh, The soundtrack features artists, including Run the Jewels. Um, there has just been so much promotion about this game. I watched a video where some of the audio team went and took audio samples of various cars from car companies. They just, like, stuck microphones in big engines and were like, we need this car to sound like this BMW. And I was like, I'm not going to fucking tell. <laughs> uh, so, so, so that game comes out this Thursday. It's a dystopian cyberpunk future game. Um I'm a little on the fence about it, whether the story will be interesting or good. Um, I have nothing more to say about it because it's not out yet. So um, <laughs> hopefully next year I'll be back to talk about it. We don't know.
0: <laughs> so, your game Since of 2020 20... is a game you haven't played? <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, I don't know yet. I'm just, I'm just marking it there because I think it might pop up in a lot of people's lists. It's a very ambitious big game and I feel like it's hard for us to talk about the big games of 2020 without acknowledging that this one's right on the horizon. Its release has actually caused multiple other game studios to delay their games coming out to next year so that they won't be around the release of this one. That is the general feeling in the air about this one. It's kind of like a big behemoth blockbuster that's on the horizon, that's going to suffocate and swallow everything that comes through. So,
1: I think the big behemoth blockbuster was that F bomb that you
3: dropped. <laughs> oh, thank you. So- sorry to all- everyone, like, you know, a little minus swears. Uh But yeah, you know, gonna, gonna get serious about games here. We're all adults. The F bomb's gonna come out um, on morning radio. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about games that I actually played now. Um, and in the indie space, there's been some really fantastic gems that have come out this year. Earlier this year, I spoke about Umurungi Generation, which was the futuristic end of days photography game set in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, that has you taking photos of, um, kind of a dystopian future and the end of the world that has been inspired by classic anime like Neon Genesis Evangelion. It tells its story through the environment that you walk through as you take photos, um, A recent expansion has come out for that game, so there's even more new levels and more story to explore and more things to photograph. And I just think it's a really remarkable game made by only a handful of people and really worth diving into. There was also soon Only the Ocean, which was the game about a fictional island off the coast of Victoria that was slowly sinking due to climate change and water levels rising. And you played um, a geologist slash um, environmental scientist who would go to that island and just record nature. And take photos and see what was happening as the island was disappearing. Can't play that game anymore because it was set in real time, so the ocean sunk. So if you missed oh, out on
1: playing, oh, ocean's mm. gone. <sighs> I remember when you reviewed that, and the whole time I thought it was a real island, and it was very <laughs> confusing. You were really but,
3: concerned. It was.
1: Yeah, I was. I was like, what? Don't make a game about it. Do something.
3: Like change like, policies. <laughs> a statement about how we need to do more about climate change and how we're going to lose land, Um, and in particular, land of the First Nations people as well. Um, And another game which I didn't review on this segment but really enjoyed was a narrative card game called Signs of the Sojourner, which is um, about connecting with people through language and conversation. And you actually play a young woman who is a merchant trader taking over her mother's trade routes. And as you explore the world in this game and talk to people by playing an elaborate card game with them Um, So the game simulates conversation through um, this card game where you match symbols and, and pictographs with people. And essentially that is, um, I guess, a way of um, abstracting conversation between different cultures. You will pick up different symbols and different cards as you speak to other people um, throughout the world. And it's sort of, um, I guess, is like a way of representing how you're learning about other cultures or learning about other ways of, communicating with people and it's got a really brilliant narrative and story it's just a really genius game that kind of explores conversation between different groups of people and it's really really great um so yeah those are three really fantastic small-scale indie games that i just thought were brilliant this year um i guess there's other things that have happened this year as well um this year was the year that everyone got into animal crossing Um, (laughs) even, you know, um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in the U.S. was in Animal Crossing. (gasps) Joe Biden's team were doing Animal Crossing merch. It seemed like everyone had an island in Animal Crossing that you could visit. I think even Fringe Festival this year had events in Animal Crossing. Um, so I guess we should discuss that, which is that I haven't been back to my island since about mid-May, and I'm pretty sure it's just overrun with weeds and cockroaches, and it's just become a hellscape. You'd think
1: that I popped into my island this week, and I hadn't been there for three months, and not as many weeds as I was expecting. And also, the other people on the island, she said, let you know that you've been away, but they're, you know, they're usually pretty cool about it. Like, oh, we, I've been seeing you for three months. Let us know when you're going away, and then, <laughs> then they're like, oh, anyway, it's great to see you again. So, but yeah, not as That's many weeds weird. as I was expecting.
3: Because the, the last Animal Crossing game, New Leaf, really negged you. When you kind of went away, people would run up and be like, you're the mayor of the town. Why did you leave us? And just make you feel like absolute trash. No. And it's like, I don't want to be guilted by a game. I like yeah. I, No. No. Um, so, yeah, Animal Crossing was a big one. I think that probably on a lot of people's big games of the year is it was just a real big comfort for people in a way to kind of visit people and socialize with people when we're all kind of locked down in our separate houses. Um, in 25 words or less, why was it called Animal Crossing? Or what? That's the name of the, the franchise. And essentially right. it's a town full of animals. So okay. you're visiting all the animal people in their town. Um, riv- riveting.
2: <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that Joe Biden played it. Is that right?
3: Well, I don't think he played it. I think his team of savvy, like, yeah. uh, like people kind of set up a bunch of Joe Biden merch inside the game to kind of, like, right. get in touch with, with I the was kids. Say, yeah, was, a very cynical he, marketing ploy, probably. Yeah,
2: because he was felled by crossing an
3: animal. <laughs> I, I don't know this story, and now I'm fascinated.
2: Well, he, he's, he broke his ankle crossing his dog. Anyway, it's a surprising <laughs> game to be into
3: um look I want a game about that that sounds great (laughs) um and so yeah I guess a a couple of like other quick notes before I get to my game of the year um Mm -hmm. big shout out to Assassin's Creed Valhalla a game that I've now put 90 hours into (gasps) I've officially consummated a relationship with the hot baker yes oh well done and I've burnt down many Christian churches (laughs) in in dark ages England um, good times. It's it's. I'm having a really good time with that game. It's actually really fun. Um, big shout-outs to Ghost of Tsushima as well, which was the samurai game from earlier this year, which I completely dumped way too much time into, and it was a very fun game. Um, but my game of the year this year is Hades, um, which was Um, A game I spoke about about a month or two ago, which is where you play the prince of the underworld, the son of Hades himself, Prince Zagreus, as he attempts to escape the underworld of Greek mythology and reunite with the Olympian gods on Mount Olympus. Um, A game that throws you into the dungeons of the overworld over over and over and over and over again as you die. And then every time you die, you go back to the house of Hades and get to have cool conversations and grow your relationships with all the denizens of the underworld. And for me, that is just a game that has managed to nail story and, and, and really good narrative with just really solid gameplay in a way that I haven't experienced with any other game that I've played this year. It's just so solid, so much fun to play um, and hands down my game of the year. And also my Prince Zagrius got to get into a romance with the God of Death. So oh, it's well really into games where you get to romance other men. If anyone's noticed that throughput, that is definitely a <laughs> thing in, in what makes a good game for me. Um, but Hades is just fantastic. And I think because it has such great accessibility options with its difficulty, it's a game that anyone can kind of jump into and have fun with, whether you're into kind of narrative storytelling or you want a really good challenging action game.
1: And where can you play it? What can you play it on?
3: Currently on Nintendo Switch and PC. And they're going to be bringing in a cross-save function soon. So if you own both, you can swap your saves between PC and Switch, which is great. Um, But, yeah, that's a little snapshot of what's been going on in games this year. There's been so much happening, and I feel like we've got not enough time to go through everything. But, yeah.
2: If there's anything you want to get through, if if there's one more thing you want to throw away.
3: Let's throw one more in, which is um, I want to give a big shout-out to... um, Final Fantasy VII Remake, which was the uh, the reworking of Final Fantasy VII, which came out in 1997. Uh, Square have come back to that game and remade the first five hours of Final Fantasy VII and turned it into a 50-hour game where they've expanded on everything. Um, it's actually quite surprising. It's really inventive. It does things with the idea of remaking or... I guess, recreating a game that's existed before in the past in a way that other remakes haven't done. Is this a sequel or is this a remake? That is a question the game itself metatextually wants to answer. And where the story goes from here, I have no idea, but I'm really excited to see the next game and to kind of keep following that story Mm. and those characters. They knocked it out of the park. So if anyone was sitting on the fence about that one, that is a great game to play. Surprised it ended up on this list.
2: Well, Adam Christie, thank you for opening our eyes this year to a vibrant world of video games when the real world was quite limited and dark. Uh, it's It's been so, yeah, it's been eye-opening and incredibly refreshing and you're always so thorough and informative and in- infectiously passionate. So thanks very much.
3: Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for letting me drop an F-bomb.
6: <laughs> we didn't let like... you. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> We'll take this <laughs> off there, Adam. <laughs> uh, thanks, Christie. Like... Pleasure.
4: Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the
2: app. Joining us as our Friday Funny Bugger this week is two time Raw Comedy State finalist Irvi Majumda. Irvi, welcome back. Hey,
8: how are you guys going? Good, thanks. Thank you. Awesome. What's the go Um, not too much. I've just been like packing up my family home of 15 years, um, because my parents are moving to Canberra. (gasps) Um, Why, what, why Canberra? What's happening? I know it's um, well, my dad got a job, and um, they also hate me, and (laughs) 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 no, they don't. I hope I just um. It's like they feel really guilty for it. My sister already lives there, so they feel pretty guilty for leaving. But um, depending on what I need, I just, like, make them feel like they're imagining me. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, so, so will you – is it an emotional time?
8: Yeah, it is weirdly. I feel like, well, I'm not. I'm, I'm useless at it. Like they've been working really hard. Um, I've hidden here for one day, and like everyone's sweating and like putting stuff in boxes. And I keep getting distracted by um, sniffing perfume bottles. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys ever done this before? It's like a portal to another world. It's like um, all the perfumes that you used. Like you know what I used to use when I was like 13 or 14, and you. Mm. <laughs> Really takes you back, and you got to like take a moment
0: to really relive that experience. Calling it Gif- perfume is a, is a bit generous. Are you talking about yeah, those? Sogging I'm s- impulse. Aerosol, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
8: impulse like fairy magic or whatever.
2: Um, Do you throw them out?
8: I uh, no! Obviously, we've just hoarded every single thing ever. <laughs> So I've got like every, it's like really hard sort of trying to throw stuff. Like I found, you know, receipts and um, it's a weird way to find out you're a hoarder because you can't let go of anything. Um, Even now I like found a hairball um, from this cat that I used to, it wasn't even my cat. It was just someone else's cat. Um, (laughs) But it's like, it's a part of me. So I don't know what to do. Oh, go Um, to the doctor, I think. (laughs) Um, But I found something a bit intense. I don't know if you guys do you believe in star signs and stuff. Yeah, mate. Oh, love it. (laughs) Me too. I say I'm like fully Capricorn, and I found like the most Capricorn um, note to myself that I wrote when I was
0: 14. For those of us who maybe are less so fait with star signs, (laughs) when you say fully Capricorn, apart from being born in that month, what does that mean?
8: (laughs) Um, So it's a very, okay, so there's a lot of things, but um, most of this is relevant because it's really, um, we like love reflecting on stuff and like setting goals and that's like my Mm -hmm. whole life. Um, So it's almost to this date, it was when I was 14, so 13 years ago, um, dated 14th of the 12th, 07. Um, And it's just, like, really – it's just, like, so many intense tones. Like, um, I was demanding a lot of myself. So it's, like, dear Irvi, I'm so curious to know what exactly you're doing right now. Are you happy with who you are? (laughs) (gasps) (laughs) Have you become uh, what you wanted to be or do you wish things were different? In my dreams, I see you winning Oscars. Oh, oh, yes! (laughs) Like, I haven't won an Oscar yet, but um (laughs) – i keep trying.
0: Um, <laughs> Wait, how old were you meant to be when you opened this? Like, did you say? Um,
8: I think it was meant to be 10 years, so it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was, like, 24, obviously, will have, like, achieved everything I need by then. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you're, like, four, and it was, like, everything was, like, such high expectations. There's no wonder I would just get depressed later in life. <laughs>
2: um. Well, you're not collecting Oscars, but fur balls, you've got under control. <laughs>
8: Exactly, and there's also, like, um, my expectations on love. It was, like, I hope that you found the man of your dreams. I hope is all I imagine, one whose spirit flashes in his eyes, who adores you for who you are, and whose kisses send shivers down your spine. Oh! (laughs)
3: Oh. Oh. It's,
8: like, we're all right. Like, yeah, I love him. But um, (laughs) it's not, like, lightning bolts every time we make out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god I love like the ending because it was um just yeah just really intense again um uh, it's like Irvi one of my biggest fears is that I'll spend away my life waiting to act tomorrow tomorrow is today Irvi I trust that you'll see this and not become true to the saying most men live their lives in quiet desperation even if you feel you're a failure and your life is going nowhere take a risk take a chance and make a change break away Which is Michael Jackson lyrics? (laughs) No, it's the number one hit song, Breakaway by Kelly Clarkson. (laughs) Which I was like, that is the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) And I finish off by saying, Make me proud, carpe diem. (laughs) It was like, yeah, it's a lot, like after a pandemic and a year where I'm like, yeah, I don't know where life's going. Um, Oh, that's tapes. Yeah, it was oh. in pretty intense mood. Oh, you were so <laughs> intense. I know. Oh. I was always like the really, my parents were like, can you just chill out? <laughs> so it was cool.
0: Do you remember writing this? Do you remember where you were at when you what? wrote it? I
8: I was always like obsessed with setting goals. Like this time every year I was like, all right, what's my goals for next year? And it was always about like improving myself. So, um, yeah, I have no recollection of writing this, but. I trust that I did it.
2: <laughs> what are you going to do with it now? Keep it, um, I
8: suppose. Keep it, obviously. Just <laughs> but, it's, yeah, it's just it's like where do I keep it? It's just, um, you know, different piles of stuff that I'm shifting around. My parents are just going to end up throwing everything away, I know. <sighs> oh. what well, you,
1: what maybe you- that's your goal for, ne- for next year. This is your new goal. Find out where you're going to keep all your old goals. <laughs>
8: Yeah, yeah we've got a pretty big shed so I think it'll just be there but I feel like moths are probably going to eat it there. You should oh. definitely
0: write a letter to yourself again for in 10 years from now yeah. Um, yeah. and maybe you'll be you'll be back on breakfast just
1: having a chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we'll all just be like what's the, the what's Irvi Majumdar ten up, like the get a letter. Yeah,
8: I'll just make the expectations really low this time, so I don't feel like a failure.
2: <laughs> just in just parting, what what will you miss about your parents?
8: Um, Well, I feel like I have a lot of in my stand up. I talk a lot. I like bag them a lot. But I feel like now that it's crunch time, um I will miss them. Like I have a joke about how basically every time I come and see them I get loaded up with like 15 boxes of curries and <laughs> <laughs> it's just like so stereotypical like it's just like me wheeling around a bag of curries as like an Indian <laughs> so it's like it's sometimes like we'll, we'll argue so much about it as well like tears and like in public and stuff and because it it'll just like sneak it up on me it's like I'll the whole weekend I'll be like just remember I just want like one box of curries, no more. And then as they're dropping me off at the station, they'll be like, surprise, he's like four more boxes. <laughs> um, so we have a lot of fights about that. But um, now that they're going and I won't get any, it's um, it's like kind of distressing, I yeah. guess.
2: No more curries and the tap's turned off on the mum and dad material.
8: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now it's just like, yeah, they do a lot of funny stuff. Like I was talking, I think, last time about how I'm really bad at driving. Um and, like, they're trying to be encouraging. But I was, like, driving the other day and I, like, look back before I start driving to the view mirror and I see my mum just, like, doing a quick prayer. <laughs> 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 just like, mom, stop pretending that you're, like, I can't see you. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Well,
2: well Irby, uh thanks heaps for joining us and uh, good luck um, pretending to help hack.
8: <laughs> thanks so much, guys. Have a good day.
4: Triple R
2: Cinephile Haley and she's here to talk screen stuff. Hey, Haley.
6: Good morning, everyone. How are we going? Good, Excellent. Good. <laughs> Well, so this is Christmas and what have you done? Bloody nothing this year, John Lennon. Stop being so judgmental. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, obviously it's the time of year where you start thinking of Christmas movies um, and I've been thinking that after the year that we've all had, um, I kind of don't want fluffy you know, uh, holly jolly Christmas movies that kind of put a gloss over everything. I'm I'm feeling a little bit more about Christmas movies that maybe are a bit more realistic mm-hmm. about the season for a lot of people. And thanks to Stan adding recently a whole bunch of latter career Billy Wilder films, uh, I was reminded of a unusual Christmas Christmas movie in his fabulous 1960 Best Picture Oscar winner, The Apartment, which is honestly just one of the greatest movies ever made.
2: Perfect choice, Hayley. Perfect choice to round out the year. Unbelievable.
6: (laughs) (laughs) You've got to go out with a classic, you know, and particularly one as prickly and groundbreaking and just, in a lot of ways, very weird and wonderful, like The Apartment. Why is it so good? Well, it was because it was made in 1960. It kind of, like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, it kind of makes this bridge across from classical Hollywood under its very, you know, moralistic production code into an era that was a lot more permissive and a lot more willing to deal with all of the blood and guts and nonsense of, of human experience rather than that kind of very sanitised Hollywood version of life. Uh, so it focuses on a, uh, an off a schlub Called CeCe Baxter. Played, by, played <laughs> by Jack Lemon, who has the greatest hangdog face in cinema, and I love him more than I can possibly say. Um, and CC Baxter is He's desperate to to get ahead in his job, but is smart enough to realise that he maybe can't do that on uh, accounting talent alone. So he's entered into a devil's bargain with several of his superiors where he gives over to them the use of his bachelor's apartment for them to conduct their extramarital affairs. Mm. And... This, this this situation has kind of thrown Baxter's life into complete disarray. So he he has, like, a schedule where he books all of these executives into using his apartment. They take advantage of him at every single moment. He spends nights out on the street in the rain while his bosses are canoodling with women in his home. <laughs> and he's, he's just, yeah, just he's so desperate trying Trying to get ahead of that corporate ladder that he's basically completely ruined his his out-of-work life and uh, this gets even more complicated when the head of personnel Mr. Sheldrake who is played by Fred McMurray which is an amazing bit of casting when you think back to Billy Wilder's earlier career and uh, his great uh, noir film, possibly the noir film, Double Indemnity, which also starred McMurray as a very unsavoury character. Uh, the, the, this big boss, Mr Sheldrake, uh, cottons on to this situation that's happening with Baxter's apartment and decides to uh, use it in order to continue his canoodlings with uh, lift operator friend, Kubalik, who's played by Shirley MacLaine. And Fran and Baxter have this kind of um, interesting friendship, uh, that kind of, you know, workplace friendship where there is the possibility that there may be something more there if Fran wasn't completely ridiculously and stupidly, she knows it's stupid, Mm. in love with Mr Sheldrake. So you kind of have this weird triangle appear. And this film is just so... Even the fact alone that it's dealing with extramarital affairs is, like, wild for the time. Mm. And Wilder was always a filmmaker who wasn't afraid to be cynical about things or to, you know, examine the really dark recesses of, of, of human nature. Obviously, he made Double Indemnity. He made Sunset Boulevard. He made Ace in the Hole. He really was, for a classical Hollywood filmmaker, very, dark in a lot of the subject matter that he that he focused on but the amazing thing about the apartment is that it it, it has that darkness to it. I mean, it's a Christmas movie that deals with loneliness and attempted suicide and mm. and ruined relationships, but it is, at the end of the day, also focused on love and finding connection, even mm. if you're just a schlub who's, whose life is a disaster otherwise.
2: Yeah. Christmas is the really the motivating for the for the tension and the stress of the the plot isn't it it's 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 not just it's not a story that just happens to take place at Christmas.
6: No, and and the the use of Christmas is so it, it's almost like beautifully weaponised because what it does it really exposes the 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 indignity and and the hypocrisy of these professional men supposedly leading these very perfect you know nineteen fifties esque lives of 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 having the wife and the children and everything like that, but they've got these double lives in, in, in the city where they're just carrying around. It's it's a very Mad Men vibe as well. Mm. If you love Mad Men, the apartment is absolutely a big, big, big influence on it. And, yeah, so you have the the, the, the almost incredulity of, of people celebrating Christmas and celebrating the holiday season when you're also focusing on these really, really lonely characters who are just trying to find some sense of love and purpose in their own lives as well and it really comes down to like the fantastic performances from Lemon and McLean they have such beautiful chemistry together and and the dialogue in this film is just you just come away from it just going oh my goodness if only people could write films like this anymore. It's so tight. It has incredible lines that are just going to stick with you. The, 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 the one that really sticks with me is McLean. She talks about how, you know, there's two people in the world. There's the takers and then there's a, there's the people who are being took and they know they're being took. So...
2: Mm. it's uh, Yeah, and also because it's from 1960, A, you get to see young Jack Lemmon. <gasps>
6: Which you... Do and he's mm. just a delight in it. And and Billy Wilder really loved Jack Lemon. He thought that he was just like an actor's actor. And unlike a lot of the other actors he worked with, he would actually let Lemon do a lot of ad-libbing and adding things to the script and things like that. Of course, before this, he he worked with Lemon on um Some Like It Hot, which is also one of the films that's been uh, added to Stan. Mm. And also a couple of the old a couple of the older Lemon. Uh, and Wilder uh, collaborations like *The Fortune Cookie* and *Irma La and so yeah, if you do end up watching *The Apartment*, uh, please search out Wilder's other films. He is probably the top grade classical Hollywood film director for me. There's probably no one better.
2: Yeah. Uh, also, you get you you there'll be like a reference to Fidel Castro, but it's a contemporary <laughs> reference. Like as a young That person. is.
6: Someone mm. refers to Fidel Castro as a fink, and it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> oh I just, yeah. Is there gonna be a am I crazy or they just don't make films like this anymore?
6: Oh, they just don't. I think it's just it's 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 very much a product of its times, it's a product of its stars, it's a product of its director, and it just comes together in the most perfect glorious way and I think yeah even if you're someone who maybe struggles with older movies I would give this a go because this is so dynamic it's so it's so alive and it and and I think it still has so much resonance for for today it's one of those films that just doesn't really age
2: yeah and it's funny right out of the gate
6: Oh, my goodness, yes. It's just, like I said, that the script is so beautifully tightly put together, it just goes a mile a minute. It's fantastic. All
2: right. Do you think we've fangirled enough?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Do we need more superlatives? Do I need more objectives? I'm into it. I'm not
0: sure if Um, you liked it or not.
2: It's a good get by Stan. Uh, It's The Apartment, the 1960 American romantic comedy drama film by Billy Wilder. And uh, starring Jack Lemon, it's on now. Um, brilliant stuff, Hayley. Thanks again for the year, but we'll talk soon.
6: Oh, always a pleasure, guys.
0: Woo! Ah,
5: that's right. Triple R.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.